Now that the Gibeonites are granted justice for Saul's atrocities, Rizpah responds by a ceremonial lamentation. This is the 46th sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from the second book of Samuel, the entire chapter, chapter 21, chapter 21, beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning, by inspiration of God, the prophet writes, Then there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make the atonement that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said unto him, We will have no silver nor gold of Saul, nor of his house. Neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. And he said, What ye shall say, and what will I do for you? And they answered the king, The man that consumed us, and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel, let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul. And the Lord did choose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ahai, whom she bare unto Saul, Armoni, and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Metholite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord. And they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days in the beginning of the barley harvest. And Rizpah, the daughter of Ahai, took sackcloth and spread it for her upon the rock from the beginning of the harvest until water dropped upon them out of heaven and suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. And it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done. And David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabeth-Gilead, which had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines hanged them when the Philistines had slain Saul and Geboah. And he brought up from thence the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son, and they gathered the bones of them that were hanged. And the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son buried they in the country of Benjamin in Zephah, in the sepulchre of Kish his father. And they performed all that the king commanded, and after that God was entreated for the land. Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel. And David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines, and David waxed faint. And Ishbi Bednab, which was of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight, he being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, succored him and smote the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swear unto him, saying, Thou shalt go no more out with us to battle, that thou quench not the light of Israel. It came to pass after this 
that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sib-Ekai, the Hushathite, slew Saph, which was of the sons of the giant. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines where Elahain, the son of Jerah or Gim, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was yet a battle in Gath, where was a man of great stature that had on every hand six fingers, and on every foot six toes, four and twenty in number, and he also was born to the giant. And when he had defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, the brother of David, slew him. These four were born to the giant in Gath, and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. <coughs> Paul writing to the church at Rome, Romans in chapter 8, beginning in verse 31 through verse 39, the end of the chapter, by the same Spirit, the Apostle says this, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who maketh also intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. As we have already learned, whenever the generation, the future generations of evil men continue in the wickedness of their father and the wicked deeds of their predecessors, they are then to be held accountable before the bar of God's justice. It doesn't matter how long they were able to get away with these evil deeds. God eventually catches up with the evil deeds. He eventually catches up with the wickedness of these men and he then holds them accountable. This was the situation in the case of Saul's grandsons. They had continued in the idolatrous practices of their grandfather and they refused to repent. Now it seems as if they were even guilty of the murderous disposition of their grandfather Saul as well. Not only were they practicing the idolatry, but they were practicing a murderous intent. And it was for these sins that they had continued in that made them guilty before the bar of God's justice. The situation might have even been worse than that since not only did they not repent, it seems that if they didn't repent, it seems that they didn't even acknowledge that they were doing evil in the sight of God. They thought that maybe everything was fine, that this was normal for them, and yet we must conclude that even though they might have thought these things were normal or that they didn't repent, they knew better. These sons and grandsons 
of Saul, they knew better. Being members of the nation of Israel and familiar with both the laws of Yahweh and the history of their grandfather's evil deeds, they should have known better. But they suppressed that. They continue in their idolatry. They continued in their murderous intentions. And while this great evil is kept secret from David, from all of these years, for all these years, it was kept secret from David. It was not hidden from the eye of God. The first lesson is that, very simply put, God sees everything. God sees everything and He judges everything throughout all generations. And this is why it is so important to do everything in one's power to train the children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. You young people know this and know this well. God sees everything. Even though you might be hiding from mommy and even though you might be hiding from daddy and doing things that you know are not right, God sees everything. And God remembers everything. To honor God in the next generation, which is what we are called to do, will safeguard future generations. If there is to be a continuity of obedience, a continuity and a generational fidelity, we must continue to admonish our children. It took the sending of a three-year famine to waken David to the situation which God wanted ended. The second lesson is very simple as well. God will reveal his will to his people in his own time. For whatever reason, God waits three years to reveal that there was a problem that was not rectified. And yet, he does finally reveal it to David. So just because something is hidden today, it does not mean that it will not be looked at by God in the future. Just because it is hidden today doesn't mean that it will be hidden tomorrow. Solomon understood this. Perhaps he was even musing upon the situation with his own father. For even now, he's an adult. Musing upon these things, he writes later on, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. These sons and grandsons of Saul had not been repenting because they thought that because the sentence was not executed speedily by God, that God had forgotten. But God does not forget. So just because something is hidden today, doesn't mean that it will be hidden tomorrow or the next day. The Bible tells us very clearly, your sin will find you out. Eventually, your sin will find you out. God waited for two generations to pass sentence, a whole two generations By His mercy, however, God opens our eyes to various situations as He did for David, as He sees fit, so that our response will be according to His perfect timing. To see sin as a mercy of God is really the grace of God. It is the mercy of God. As we examine ourselves, it is the mercy of God. To acknowledge our sin, to confess our sin, it is only by the grace of God. And remember the progression of repentance First and foremost, we have to see sin, the sight of sin. Once we see it, we must, if it is true mercy, if it is by the grace of God opening our eyes to the sin, then we will sorrow for it, we will confess it, we will be shamed for it, we will begin to hate it, and then we will turn from it. So when God opens our eyes and we see our sin, it is a sheer mercy of God. 
the Lord awakened David to the fact that the family of Saul was continuing in their pursuit of other gods and their murderous affections. And that leads us to consider a third lesson. Knowing the wickedness of Saul and his evil deeds against God and his covenant heritage, in addition to his destruction by God's hand through the Philistines, this should have given these grandsons a moment of pause to consider their own evil ways. My grandfather was just slain by the hand of God through the Philistines. Maybe I should look at my own self. And once again, they were obviously not willing to consider the history of their own tribe, the Benjamites, and the history of their own grandfather, Saul. Perhaps, as so many people today think, that they could hide from God, they could fool God, or that they were wiser than God. You know, a lot of people today, they think they're wiser than God. Oh, I know God says this, but I'm going to do that because I think I'm able to do that because God doesn't really mind if I I tweak the Bible a little bit. One of the most potent admonitions by the Scripture through the Apostle Paul is the commandment for self-examination. The Apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth in his second epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 13, verse 5, he says very clearly, examine yourself. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? He's telling these people who are already professing Christianity had a testimony that they were following Christ that they still should be examining themselves just in case they were still blinded by their own sins and their own wicked intentions. Even David. You think about David. Glorious David, a man after God's own heart, the king of Israel, taken from nothing so that he might become everything. He even asks for constant oversight by God to be examined of God. Notice what he says in Psalm 26 too. Examine me, O Lord. And it's interesting here because he uses the word Yahweh. Examine me, Yahweh. He speaks of it. Him in a very personal way. As the covenant God, I am under thy covenant, O Lord. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins in my heart. The man wanted to be exposed. He didn't want to hide. Here's David, the king of Israel, wanted to be exposed so that he would not fall to his own evil intentions. And so the question might be asked, why would these God-fearing men ask to be examined? If they were God-fearing... Why would they ask to be examined? Well, because, simply put, they they understood the deceptive nature of their own heart and mind. The worst deception is self-deception. To be self-deceived is the worst kind of deception. They knew that in and of themselves, as a result of the natural blindness of their own heart, they were not able to police themselves truthfully. And so, godly men, and it's true about the fact that only godly men are going to ask God in His mercy to examine them so that they might examine themselves in light of God's truth. You see, God had given Saul's grandsons plenty of time to to consider their ways. He even gave them the history behind their grandfather to consider what happened to Saul so that they would not repeat the very same wickedness that their grandfather had done. The time that God gave to them was expressly for self-examination but they fail to look deeply into their own motives and practices. They rather continued in their evil. Perhaps they thought that God didn't see or wouldn't take them to task, 
but again, they were dreadfully wrong. As it is always with the wicked, they were deceived. God sees everything, and because he sees everything, because he's just, because he's righteous, because he wants to see justice, he weighs all actions in the balance of his just law. His deeds are just, and he brings judgment on the wicked. And again, I remind each and every one of us, every one of us, that we have three areas of our lives that we live in. Three areas. Each and every one of us lives in our three areas of life. Our public life, how people see us out there. Our private life, with our wives, our children, our husbands, our immediate family. And then, there's that secret life. That life that you live in secret, in the closet, where no one's looking. That you think you can get away with things. That's the place that needs to be cleaned out. That's the place that needs to be examined. That secret life where the sin festers because you don't think that God sees or you think that you won't be found out. That's what needs to be examined. And so in an obedient move, David obeys God's command and gives the charge of a just restitution to the offended party, the Gibeonites. And as a result, the seven grandsons are chosen and hanged. Five from Michal's adopted sons, two from Rizpah, Saul's concubine wife. But David spares Mephibosheth as a result of his covenant promise with Jonathan before God. And this was only right since David had sworn a covenant oath to spare Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, even though there's another Mephibosheth Stated, that's not the same Mephibosheth. So David is going to adhere to his promise to his beloved Jonathan. David's word was his bond. In verse 10, we see recorded for us Rizpah's grief over this troubling situation. Notice verse 10. And Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for her upon the rock from the beginning of harvest until water dropped upon them out of heaven and suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. A very curious action by this woman. Very curious response. What is most glaring is that we, we read no response from Michal over the execution of her adopted sons. Whether or not Michal was deeply troubled or not, we're, we're not told. What we are told, however, is how Rizpah responded. God draws our attention to this woman almost as if to draw our attention away from Michal, who really, we don't read anything of her grief. It seems that in her grief, Rizpah took sackcloth, which was, of course, customary. In a time of grief and sorrow, that was customary. And she goes to the hill where these sons, these actually grandsons, where these grandsons of Saul were hanged and encamps there upon a rock. Now, public hanging upon a tree and then afterwards displaying the rotting bodies for all to witness served as a warning to others, because cursed was everyone that hanged on a tree. And these seven were cursed of God. They were hung on a tree. In this case, it served as a warning against idolatry and the murderous practices associated with it, but it also served as a warning to fathers who would not admonish their sons to walk in the ways of righteousness rather than in the ways of wickedness. So this was, this was a public expression of God's judgment upon a generation that had gone astray. But what is so curious here is that Rizpah did not wear the sackcloth as one might suppose in a time of mourning, but rather she spreads it upon a rock while gazing at these dead carcasses. And if that means anything, and we know there's so, so many uh, types and figures in scripture, but if that means anything, 
Could the rock symbolize Christ? We know that Christ is likened to the rock. Could that rock symbolize Christ, who for these seven individuals, he, the Christ, became the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense? And he is the responsible party for the condemnation of these idolatrous men. Could then the sackcloth draped upon the rock point to his suffering and sorrow that Christ had to endure in hope that Christ's atonement suffering would be applied to these men by Rizpah? Maybe Rizpah was hoping that somehow, some way, somehow, there would be mercy for these men. Now this is all speculation, symbolic speculation, but there's certainly a meaning here that cannot be ignored, whatever that is. So as she stood guarding the dead bodies of these men, and that's what she was doing, she was guarding the bodies. We are told that she would not allow the birds to rest upon them, since the only reason for the birds to descend upon the dead carcasses was to violate them, to dishonor them. These are no doubt vultures who waited for men to fall dead, either in the battlefield or by execution, and she did not want that dishonoring on these, these men. So in honor of her, her sons, and the sons, the adopted sons of Mikhail, Rizpah would not allow such an offense. Now we're also told that if any larger animal in the evening sought to ravage the carcasses, she would shoo them away as well. And she persisted in this vigil throughout the barley harvest until the rains came as a testimony of her love, sorrow, and her honoring of the dead. Now, as with every situation recorded in Scripture, this too has an interesting spiritual parallel. We read almost the same thing in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 1 and following, this is what we read. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram, not yet Abraham, but Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad, and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of the earth of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? So now Abram is asking, how do I know? How are you going to solidify, verify your promise? And he said unto him, the Lord said unto Abram, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds he divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. The same thing that Rizpah is doing. Now consider the strange event here. We have four different types of animals represented here for a total of, uh, of, of five. A three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old she-goat, a three-year-old ram, and two birds. And of course, as you know, number three is always a number of, of, of the atonement, of the sacrifice of the Christ. But then you have the two birds, which is, if you're going to look at numbers at all, two by two, that's how he sends out the church. Each of the larger animals are, in fact, cut into two parts. They are killed, they are slaughtered, they're cut in half. Then they're placed, touching each other as if 
connecting one to another, to be as one. Then the birds are placed together, but they are not killed. They are not cut into pieces. They're just laid there. Naturally, the vultures would come. They would descend upon these animals. But Abram, who at this point is a representation of God the Father, because Abram literally means Father, who is preparing the sacrifices, and that's what God did. God the Father prepared the sacrifice. He prepared the Son to be our sacrifice. Does not allow the vultures to descend upon the divided animals or the birds. Each of these are covenant symbols. Each of the animals represent an aspect or character of the Lord Jesus Christ, while the two birds represent the church. And each of these sacrifices, if you know that the heifer, the goat, the ram, all of them were acceptable sacrifices to God, depending on the wealth of the family or the individual. And that's why Joseph and Mary only brought the turtle doves for the sacrifice, since they were poor. By not allowing the vultures to descend upon the carcasses, Abram was protecting the honor and purity of these covenant symbols, God then sends a deep sleep upon Abram. Now notice this. In verse 12. Genesis 15 verse 12. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. This is almost the same language that is used when speaking about Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 21 and 2 we read this. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God taken from man made he woman and brought her unto him. So we've got a deep sleep with Abram. We've got a deep sleep with Adam. Both of them are bringing forth something. And if we look at this symbolically, this seems to typify Christ bringing forth the church or God himself bringing forth the church, the body of Christ, his bride from his rib here in Adam's case which was pierced by the centurion's sword. Remember, Adam had the rib taken from him in the same way that God had to remove that rib to pierce Adam's side, to remove the rib in the same way that the centurion's pierced the side of the Christ in order to bring forth the water and the blood of the gospel of Christ for the elect. All of this symbolic, all of this the covenant, all of this speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in Abraham's situation, in Abraham's situation is different. Very different kind of a sleep. It was a horrible sleep. Since in order for Abram, the father, to bring forth the church, he had to send Christ so he might be the father of many nations. And then you see that after this whole ceremony, Abram's name is changed to Abraham, father of many nations. So we read in verse 17 of Genesis 15, and it came to pass that when the sun went down, it was dark a time of darkness, it was dark, a time of darkness, and behold, a smoking furnace, and a burning lamp passes between the pieces, and the smoking lamp and the burning furnace is representation of God's wrath which passes through the pieces, signifying all that the pieces were having intimacy with God's wrath, including the two birds. And this is what Jesus meant when he told the disciples that they were going to share in his baptism of death and wrath, but only vicariously. Matthew 20, 20 and following, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshipping him, and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand, and the other on thy left, in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with? He's talking about the wrath of God here. And they said unto him, 
in their ignorance, of course, in their simplicity, yeah, we are, yeah, we're able. And he said unto them, ye shall drink indeed of my cup, the cup of God's wrath, and indeed be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. So what Christ is saying is, you're going to drink of my wrath, you're going to share in my baptism, You go, but vicariously. You won't have to drink of the cup of the wrath of God, I will do it for you. So Genesis 15 is teaching us that what Christ had to go through to become the father of many nations, which was all part of the covenant agreed upon in the Godhead between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christ had to endure the wrath of God. But now how does that relate to Rizpah's vigil? Does that have anything to do with Rizpah's weirdness in her putting sackcloth upon a rock and chasing away the vultures and the animals? Well, we know that the generational soul is cursed. Remember, the hanging was upon the trees. Even when we read in Esther chapter 8, verse 7, Haman was hanged on a tree. Even though the word used in that verse is translated as gallows, the actual Hebrew word is the word for tree. He was hanged upon a tree. Because that's where they hung people back then. Another reason for Rizpah's action may even be that because of her sorrow, she is keeping this vigil as an attempt to keep the memory of Saul's apostasy. Now, that would be a positive notion, to keep the memory of Saul's apostasy alive as a warning to us and as a warning to Israel who might refuse to repent of the sins and practices of their forefathers. And remember that we are all in a covenant relationship with God who holds all men accountable. So she is using the rock to symbolize this is the rock of stumbling, the stone of offense. Don't offend the Christ by hiding your sins. Now at least this seems to be possible, or at least something that we might glean from this event. So seeing Rizpah's sorrow, David obviously, moved with compassion for the woman, decides to honor Saul and Jonathan by giving them a proper burial. And the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, buried they in the country of Benjamin and Zela, in the sepulcher of Kish, his father, and they performed all that the king commanded. So once these things were accomplished, we are told that God was well pleased. But when you read the scripture, there's a very curious precision in that verse. Note what it says. And after that, God, we would think that we would read, and after that, God was entreated. God was satisfied. God's justice was served. That's not what it says. And after that, God was entreated for the land. You see, once the will of God was accomplished, once justice was served, and the task of recompense was satisfied, God was willing to hear the requests of his people. And once these things were accomplished, God was able to be entreated for the land. Since because of Saul's generation following him, the land itself was suffering from a famine. That's why there was a famine. The land was was responding to sin. Even as in the days of Adam, when Adam sins, the land responded. And there was thorns and thistles coming up from the ground of Eden that used to be the paradise of God. 
So once these things were accomplished, God was able to be entreated for the land, since the land itself was suffering from a famine as a result of the unresolved transgression. And this tells us that whenever there is an unresolved transgression against God and His righteousness, not only do people and the realm of human governments and institutions suffer, the land itself suffers. Because everything's connected. Everything's connected under a covenant bond between God, man, and the universe. David's act of justice impacted the entire culture. His act of righteousness then recultivated the societal order. It rejuvenated the land that was in famine, that was being famished. It returned it from being cursed to being blessed. And that is why we must be culturally relevant. That is why we cannot hide our theology in the four walls of the church. That is why we cannot just be Christians and then out there be regular people. We have to be Christians day and night, day after day, year after year, engaging the culture so that God might be entreated for the land because the land is full of bloodshed and tyranny and unrighteousness and justice has not been served. But it is the body of Christ that is called to bring about the word of God to impress upon the consciences of men so that the land might be entreated and God might be well pleased because everything's connected under a covenant bond between God and man in the universe. So now the things were back in order. God was entreated for the land. Justice was served. The sons are hanged. At least for a short season, God, poor David, God arranges yet another confrontation with Israel's arch enemy, the nation of the Philistines. Now one thing that should be pointed out is that it seems as if the Philistines did not attack while the famine was raging. That was just a mercy of God. You would think that is only because God is orchestrating, as we saw last time, providentially orchestrating all things to teach lessons. So while the famine was raging, the Philistines were not attacking it appears that God was waiting to move the Philistines to fight until Israel was in a stronger position to be victorious. It may be even that God was testing Israel while the famine was raging. Perhaps God was even testing Israel to see if they would do the hard thing in avenging the Gibeonites. This was the hard thing. You're going to go to the generations of Saul and you're going to say, you know what? The things you are doing, following your father, your grandfather, those footsteps of the Benjamites, we're going to now bring you to justice. That was a hard thing. David is being asked to do the hard thing. And yet David doesn't miss a beat. If Israel obeyed, he knew things would go well against the Philistines. If they refused to do the hard things, things would turn out badly. And this teaches us another lesson. Whenever we are faced with hard decisions we ought to think heavily upon them so as to not shirk back and shrink back from making the right move Godward. You know, God is going to give us hard decisions to make. But we need to make the right decision. I don't care how hard they are. We need to make the right decision. We need to follow God's word. If we respond rightly, things will go well. If we don't shrink back from our responsibility to do the right thing, as hard as that right thing may be, Disciplining our children. That shouldn't be that hard. It may hurt a little while, but it'll hurt you a whole lot more if you don't discipline. 
At least in the end. And then you'll be the Saul's grandsons. You'll be like that generation of reprobates. And that's not what we want. We must do the hard thing. And believe me, in your lives, you know, there has been hard things that you had to deal with. I know in my life there was. But if we respond rightly, things will go well. God has promised it. Even though we had to make hard choices. But even though David did the right thing, at this time in his life, he's growing weary. We read this in verse 15. Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel, and David went down and the servants with him and fought against the Philistines, and David waxed faint. We never really read that before. Here is the, the, the giant killer. The killer of giants. The killer of lions and bears with his, with his bare hands. And now we read, he goes into the army, he's waxing faint. But this is natural. He's older now. He had many years of fighting. He had been through many years of hardship. Think about the stress. More than even a man could naturally endure, he had borne the hardship of his sin over many years, which resulted in the death of his sons, a rebellious people against him, a breaking up of the, of the nation, a famine now that lasted three years. And if we look at David's life, we see a man who's tragic. And yet, at the same time, we look at David's life and he's a man most glorious. A life of tragedy and glory. But that's the way things are. When the Philistines attack, David is there on the front lines like a good king should be. He learned his lesson. Because the last time where he was supposed to be, he wasn't, and that's when all the problems began. And yet, on the front lines, the flesh was weary, spirit willing, he is weak. Racked with age and the battle scars of many years in the service of God, and the misery of his sins, David is weary, and that's how you should go out of life. That's how you should end your life, with the battle scars of the kingdom work. I remember a good dear friend of mine used to say, we're going to go into heaven with our, with our armor chinked and cut and flaming because of all the battles that we've been in. That's the only way to go out. You don't go out on your knees unless before the Christ. You go out as a warrior. David wanted to go out as a warrior, but he's still weary. Racked with age and the battle scars of many years in the service of God and the misery of his own sins and the destruction of his own family, David is tired. But note, the adversary that David must meet once again is the Philistine. In particular, this man called Ishbibinab, Goliath's own son, perhaps his grandson. When the Bible talks about sons, you're not sure if it's a grandson or a son. So here we have again, his archenemy, while David's weak, comes against him. One of the sons of the giant the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight and being girded with a new sword. Not an old sword. It wasn't Goliath's sword because David had that one. It was a new sword. And he wanted to slay that king. We can learn a lot from this. I mean, you know, we look at it like historically and say, oh yeah, that's really something. It's very exciting. No, 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 no. There's lessons here. Notice the hatred against God's victors is continuing generationally. Here you have sons and grandsons still hating the king of Israel. You have the hatred of the race of the reprobates generationally continuing in hatred against Christianity. And here's a man of the sons of the giant, 
the giant of Gath, Goliath, who might have been waiting to meet David on the battlefield from his youth. He knew that his father was killed by David in in the most shameless fashion, his head being paraded and brought to Jerusalem. I'm going to take vengeance on that man for my father. The hatred was fueling him. Year after year, he had one mission, vengeance. He was a man committed to God that we would be committed. He obviously trained hard to be able to wield such a, a spear of such great weight. He might have even been considered by the Philistines as their new champion since he had a new sword. And if we look even deeper into the possible gospel symbology, this new sword might be a reference to a new worldview tactic because we have the sword of the Spirit. It is the Word of God. What's the new sword of the Philistine? Is it a new tactic? Is it a new philosophy? A new theology? But this Ishbibanab is actually a bully. He knows David is older. He knows he's weary as a result of his age, because of what he's been through. And he wants to take advantage of the weariness of David. Perhaps he thought that David would not be able to sling that stone so accurately as before. Or even if he did, the son of the giant would be ready. He knew David's secret weapon. And that's also a tactic of the enemy. They wait until we are weakened and then they attack. And that's why within the churches of Jesus Christ and Christendom today, you have a therapeutic gospel, not a challenging gospel, wearying the saint, bringing them down, not making them battle ready so that the wicked can come in like a flood and destroy them. That's what we have in America. They wait until the church is weak and then they attack and they test and they test. And the principalities, the governors, the legislators, the senators, they say, let's test to see the weakness of the church. Where's that soft spot? Let's tell them that there's a plague and have them close and see who does. Are they battle ready? This is not hyperbole. This is reality. This is our history. The history we live in today. But God will not allow such tactics to succeed. Enter David's backup. Abishai the son of Zeruiah. But Abishai the son of Zeruiah succored him and smote the Philistine and killed him. you got to love this. you just got to love this. God raises up Abishai. God has our back. In fact, he's going in the battle before us. He never will let the enemy to get the advantage of those who truly want to be the warriors for Christ. But note about Abishai. Abishai was, he was, he was war ready. He was battle ready. He was a man of battle. He was ready. He didn't say, oh, David, you're weary now? Oh, I was relying on you. I know you're old, but no, uh, let me go get ready. No, he was ready. He was a man of battle, second string perhaps, but nevertheless ready to take on the giant when David was weary. And that's what we need today. We need younger men to be ready. We need them to be battle ready, to ready themselves to take to the battle when we older warriors are too weary to fight. Because that will come the day. There will be a day when we're just too weary to fight anymore. And then what? Where are the Abishais? Where are the sons of Jeruiah? Where are those men that are going to take the mantle of the pulpits and really, really be battle ready? Abishai was ready. But there's something else about that man. He was observant. David didn't even need... You don't read anywhere where David says, you know, I'm really beat. You think you could take over? 
He was there. He knew David was getting older. He didn't need to be told by David that he was tired and needed some backup. Abishai was astute and he ran to the aid of the king. You know, I've always said before, you know, don't ask me what you should do. You should look around and do it. You know what needs to be done. You know what the kingdom of God needs. Do it. Don't ask me to tell you what to do because if you don't know what to do, if I tell you what to do, you're just going to do it and then you can forget about doing other things because you're not observant. We have to be watchful. We have to be watchful. We have to be ready. We have to be ready to fight. David didn't need to tell Abishai a thing. And Abishai didn't need to be asked. He just did what he knew had to be done. He saw a need and rose to the occasion because he understood the consequences if the enemy won. Now I'll tell you this, you young people, don't wait for your mother or your father to tell you to take the garbage out. Don't wait for them to tell you to pick up your toys or to rake the leaves or to mow the grass or to take the dog out or feed the cat. Don't wait for it. Just do it. That's leadership. That's what God is looking for. That's what makes us true men. Abishai was ready. So what does that look like? Well, ask yourself this. Am I well trained? Do I know what needs to be done as it concerns the church, the kingdom, its mission, its people? Am I available? Why don't we ask another question? Am I involved? Do I want to be involved? Or, hey, you fight them off. I'll run for help. Abishai didn't say that. He was ready to go first. And we've got to understand something. You've got a giant against a little Hebrew man. But God was with him. God was with him. Abishai was right there in the middle of the Lord's battle. Today's Christian is most involved in his or own private battle thinking that they are fighting the Lord's battle. And this is one of the reasons why the culture is in a tailspin. We all need to be in the fight, otherwise the enemy will overtake us. Okay, so seeing David's need to be relieved of the battle, the nation forbids him to be on the battlefield in the future. Notice what, notice what they say. The men of David swear unto him, saying, Thou shalt no more go out with us to battle. They really loved the guy. With all of his tragedy, they knew what he had done and they respected it. They honored him. They were thankful. And they wanted to preserve him. We'll do the heavy lifting now. Because we're ready We're prepared to do the heavy lifting now. Thou shalt no more go out with us to battle that thou quench not the light of Israel. They're calling him, you're you're the mentor, you're the light of Israel. We need you, we need your wisdom, we need your, your, your prowess, your cunning. We need your experience. This is definitely a transitional period for the nation. David is now going to represent Israel as their king, judge, and the light of Israel. But he will no longer be in the heat of the battle. So after Abishai defeats Ishbib-Enab, another of Goliath's sons, comes out to fight against Israel, and another man, the Hushathite, slays him, Sibachai. Now, now you think, you got two guys? Two battle-ready? Wow, one is like, wow, I'll take one. But now you've got two. You've got two battle-ready men. A second person taking responsibility for defending the kingdom of God other than David. And then, lo and behold, there's even a third man. Helena of Bethlehem. He's ready to fight and he kills the brother, he kills the brother of Goliath. We read that in verse 19. You've got men battle ready. 
Now things get really exciting when yet another warrior enters into the fight. Verse 20 and 21. And there was yet an, a battle in Gath. And there was a man of great stature. Notice, God is making sure that we understand this is just not some guy. It's not, there's not an equal, equal, equal match here. We've got a giant and we've got a little Jew. A little Hebrew guy. Okay? That's what you've got. The Hebrews were very small. They're small people. And yet, Fearless. Even though they were small, their courage was mighty. Taller than the Empire State Building. And they go out and they do what needs to be done. Even this man who had six fingers on his on, on his hands and, and six toes on his foot. And he was born of the giant. And when he defied Israel, notice, he just defied Israel. He spoke ill against them. He said, I'm going to fight you and you're no good and your God is no good and, and it's all a lie. Jonathan, the son of Shimea, the brother of David, slew him. So you got another guy come up. I could tell you this. David was probably very encouraged. Whenever a people defy God, God's people must respond. When they declare battle, God's people must respond. Because if they fail to do so, well, maybe they're not God's people at all. Maybe they're just saying they are. But note verse 22. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Victory! For the honor of Yahweh, the covenant God, Jehovah himself, victory for Israel. God tells us that these men were giants in the same way as the reprobate often present themselves as giants. Bigger than life. The government, the state, bigger than life. And yet, easily destroyed by David and those who follow him. Easily destroyed by the Christ and those who follow him, the body of Christ. We need, today, we need giant killers. Next, we follow David as he faces more grooming, more challenges from God himself. And this we shall do. God helping us with the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.